with us in studio this morning, Lucinda Creighton, CEO of Vulcan Consulting, former Minister for European Affairs. Mary Whelan, former ambassador to Austria and the Netherlands and international organisations in Geneva. David McWilliams, economist, founder of Kilconomics uh, Economics Festival. Mary Minahan, assistant news editor at the Irish Times. And Donahoe Bachon, professor in international relations at DCU. I thought I'd start with that um, uh, Sunday Independent lead story. I might start with you, uh, if I may, uh, Lucinda Creighton. Ministers now fear carbon tax backlash. And it is alleged that everybody's going to pay more for their home heating oil, their diesel, their petrol. Is that the right way to go about a big scale problem? To tax somebody who drives from Cavan to Dublin every day can't change their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, well, it's an interesting story in the sense that it's rather surprising that ministers are surprised that there might be a backlash about um, about new t- new taxes, particularly taxes which will be on sort of essential utilities. So, um, you know, heating your home, running your car, etc. The things that um, are already very expensive in this country above European averages and um, will have a very significant impact on um, the cost of living for most citizens yeah. um, around the country. Yeah. This now is focused we, we have to get our act together, you yeah. know. We're, we're very tardy mm-hmm. in all of this. But is that not picking off the easy, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's talking about um, a hike which would increase um, the price of 900 litres of home heating oil, for example, by 15 or 16 euros. So it's not insignificant. Um, and, um, you know, arguably... If we are to really address, and I know the, the, the government has only recently published its its um, plan um, around, around tackling our carbon emissions and and um, reaching our our climate goals, um, but you know you would uh, certainly I would think that um, you know looking at um, how we um, support public public transport infrastructure, um, how we deal with carbon emissions um, from from cars, yeah. uh, moving to um, to more sustainable sources of fuel, for example. I mean, most people are still driving uh, diesel or petrol cars in this country. Um, you know, moving to electric cars, incentives for that to happen. Yes. Those types of measures are much bigger scale and um, would potentially have a much bigger impact on um, on our carbon footprint um, and would have less impact on people who are trying to survive, um, yeah. uh, heat their homes, um, provide for their families, etc. So, um, you know, this is, a, I think, always put forward as a sort of simple solution, a carbon tax which hits consumers rather than a change in behaviour and, and fairly radical changes in policy, which yeah. need to happen at central government level. Mary? Yeah, I think, you know, environmentalism is the issue of our days, but the baby boomer generation that uh, Greta Thunberg and others have criticised, they still vote in very, very large numbers and they don't like extra charges. And, uh, you know, carbon tax, I think there's an argument that it needs to be substantial in order to change people's behaviour. But yes, it is going to impact 
on the rural heartlands because... Yeah, because how can you change your behaviour if there's no public transport? Well, I always say there's no Dart in Donegal, there's no Lewis in Letterfrack, you know. Yeah. You're, these people are very car dependent for very obvious reasons, be it petrol or diesel. And so, I mean, if you take the people driving from Cavan or Port Leach or whatever, they're living there because they can't afford to live in Dublin beside where they work. Yeah, but there are very basic issues like, for example, car parking spaces at commuter train stations where you, you know, unless you're there at 6.15 in the morning, you won't actually find a space to park your car if you have to drive three or four kilometres to get to the train station to avail of the public transport that might be available. And then when you do get on the train, you know, you're probably standing um, and you're probably getting off at Houston or someplace and, and then trying to connect on to... So, it's 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 the lack of I think a, a joined up policy right. for 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 many years. Yeah. Let's face it. And I mean that's Dublin. I mean Cork and Limerick and Waterford and all the centres. Mm-hmm. They all have that similarity. I mean there's no Lewis in Cork yet. No, and it doesn't look like there's going to be one. But I mean I think that to do something like this, you're trying to change people's behaviour, which has built up over close to a hundred years. You know, in terms of dependency yeah. on carbon and dependency on cars and what have you. And then you look at the countries, well, what countries have done this? What countries have weaned themselves off? And you tick, and, and they're there. They're Netherlands and Denmark and Sweden. Then you look at Sweden, you say, well, that's a population a bit like Ireland. Mm. Very, very, lots of really rural, very, very far away places where most people argue that public transport isn't efficient. And then you think, you know, maybe do something radical like make public transport free. And then you think, well, how do you make it? How do you pay for it? And just rather than look at public transport as something that has to make money, look at it like a school. You don't go to a school and say, you know what, you've got to make money. Yeah. You know, there's, there's different targets. The targets are educational, etc. And then how would you make it free? I was looking at the budget, obviously, because of my, my, my game today. And uh, we raise about 1.8 billion in transport taxes. So that's VRT and motor tax, etc. You could ring fence that money, Okay put it into a public infrastructure fund. There's no, no absence of money in the world at the moment. You know, Ireland will never, well, certainly not never, but yeah. won't have a problem going borrowing for the long term for this. And what you would do is you say, we're going to ring fence that as the interest to pay the loan every, every year, invest properly in public transport and make it free. And if you make it free, suddenly you're not punishing people. See, this is the whole thing about taxes. Like, taxes is, I'm going to punish you for your behaviour, right? But if you turn it around in your head and say, I'm going to reward you, for your behaviour. Yep. Then suddenly the conversation changes, the narrative changes, people don't feel put upon, they feel, oh, this is an opportunity. And these are the types of things that, you know, in a budget week, it would be really interesting if somebody said, okay, here's the dots we're trying to figure out, yeah. A, B, C, D. Can we do it? Yeah. And do something radical so people feel rewarded for good behaviour as yeah. opposed to punished for allegedly yeah. bad behaviour. The other thing, I think people only recently fully realised how the airline industry gets off scot-free uh, in terms of taxing um, their fuel. And maybe one of the things people have to say is, no, I can't go on my holidays, you know, at the drop of a hat. Now, don't all be looking so disappointed. <laughs> this is getting you to change your behaviour and you can go down the West or you can do whatever you want to do. Mary, well, what about that? Or, or take a boat. Like Greta Thunberg did to New York. Yes. But then the people who brought the boat back flew to New York to bring the boat back. Yeah, uh, we could all do that. 
I think we need to have a proper discussion here about uh, what it means by being pro-environmental and yeah. uh, getting rid of and fossil fuels. And it costs fuel. pain. And it costs money and it can we can pay it through carbon tax, central government funding, in fines to the EU for not meeting the targets. But pay we will. And the only concern I would have is that it should be an effective tax. Now, uh, I don't have problems with the carbon tax we pay. If it increases, as it says in, in the papers, I don't have a problem. Uh, I will try. I do try to turn down the thermostat. I try to use public transport. I'm lucky. I live in Dublin. But on a cold winter's day, that thermostat is going to creep up because I don't see the bill for another six weeks or whatever. So I do think we need to talk a lot more about what has to be done, but also what's effective. And I'm not convinced that a carbon tax is effective at doing anything except raising revenue. Yeah. And that, to me, that's my concern. Yeah. Last word, Donegal. Yeah, I, I, I liked the idea of the free public transport. I mean, that's been costed, I think, at about 500 million, which was surprisingly low in my book. And I've been to places like Tallinn in Estonia, Luxembourg, where they have done this, and it has been an immense success. And and again, I think it, it just, it would be doing something bold, something radical, something that kind of demonstrates some kind of vision of where we want to be. And you're absolutely right about the, the airlines. Um, you know, one trip on an airplane really eclipses all the savings you do with recycling and, and the plastic bags and whatnot. So that has but we've got used to it. God bless Mr O'Leary. I mean, we have got used to it that you can hop across here or you can hop and across that's the there. Wonder of, and we like it. And that's the wonder of, you know, t- taxes that are targeted appropriately is that if, if there are alternatives, and there are, you don't have to fly, um, you can modify behaviour. I mean, again, ha- the plastic bags is a good example of that. Yeah. I mean, who would have imagined that we could have made them a thing of the past and indeed an ugly thing uh, and now everybody brings their canvas bags to the shops. So that's an example of when you when you provide an incentive and, and there are alternatives that you can modify behaviour through, through tax. Right. It's well, not just about well, would, know, the, the idea of free public transport is not just about the environment. It's actually about the society, jails people together. If you look around the world, really sophisticated countries have really good public transport and unsophisticated countries have traffic jams. Traffic jams are probably the best leading indicator of unsophisticated thinking at the top level. Mm. And which is why when you go to countries that are straining under development problems, they all have traffic jams. We shouldn't be in that business. Yes, but if when people come up with very big uh, proposals about how we could go underground and have spurs going here, they're just as missed as loopers. But they're not loopers because look, if, if you look, if you, when you start building infrastructure, you should never stop. That's the lesson that we know from... from and foreign investment would do it. Foreign investment would do it. You just don't... You, you, you begin, say, for example, you start digging the, the poor tunnel hole. You continue digging all the time. And the interesting thing is... The resistance to that isn't money, ever, because now huge pension funds around the world are very happy to finance mm-hmm. infrastructure. The resistance is NIMBYism. Mm-hmm. The resistance is local government. I've, of, I've of, often begun to think that the most aggressive and dangerous political entity these days is a residence committee. Because, You're I'm not serious. the first person to say that. <laughs> because it, because it, stops, it stops everything. But, but you see, that's called consultation. And if you look at what happened in Ulsterard, they were given out stink that there was no consultation. I have a deep suspicion that the reason there wasn't consultation was because people expected exactly that and problems. But I think there's a difference. I mean, I think that building metros, for example, what we're talking about, should not necessarily be held up by concerns of 20 people worried about their front gardens because if you if we decide to go on that route that's grand but this place will be chaotic and it'll seize up 
But how does how does that solve the problems of rural Ireland? We have a dispersed population. Mm. So yeah, you're but never even going in to Dublin. Have. Even in Dublin, I mean, if you take all the cars coming into Dublin, I, I haven't the number off the top of my head. They come in and they clog. If you had spurs coming in to Dublin, okay, you'd need the parking, mm-hmm. but it would it would put less cars on the road and facilitate people from I, the I, south side and the west side and the. But, but our. Our, the, the pattern that we have chosen is dispersed rural population and dispersed urban population. Dublin spre- uh, stretches tens yeah. uh, of miles in every but direction, it but it okay. does yeah. because we don't like high rises. That's you know, changing, that's though. part but, of the problem. But, but again, yeah. I'm not sure that we don't like high rises. I'm not sure anybody's been mandated to do you like high rises or not. Somebody has decided that Dublin is going to be a low height city, which in this day and age when we've got... Infrastructural problems, land problems, housing problems makes no sense at all. It's it's as if some loon has come and taken over the planning and said, you can't. You look around every other city says, hold on a second. Dublin uh, Chamber of Commerce did a report that said that every extra story on a one acre site generates 25 new apartment units. So do the maths. You just go up and up and up and you, you, you designate a certain area. And so what and I'm saying, Mary, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure that we have collectively decided we don't. I think somebody has collected on our behalf, and the upshot is people commuting from Drogheda, people coming from Port. It Leash. is, but it is know, changing. I mean, though. if you I take, mean, we were talking to Harry Crosby on the yeah. program a while ago, and he had this idea about doing uh, doing something down around the port. Big thinking, yeah. you know. Yeah. And when you come up with big thinking yeah. here, people say, well. But Would that's you go where we, away? That's not the way we do that, it. That's where some, I guess, political leadership is also required. I mean, we had a we had a recent um, local elections which saw um, ministers, TDs, councillors, and aspiring councillors all coalescing to to prevent the extension of the metro system. For example, um, you know, everybody jumped on that particular bandwagon. Um, you have you do have a situation now whereby, for example, in Dublin City Council, they have changed the height restrictions. There is scope to build um, higher density um um, uh, both residential and um, commercial developments uh, in parts of the city. It has to be done in a planned way, of course. It has to be sensitive to the to the, to and the built environment. And it has to provide parks yeah. and services for the people exactly, using it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and arguably not so much parking spaces, but, yes. but yeah. certainly all of the other facilities, for sure. Um, so, but things need to change we need political leadership in in this in this regard um there is huge scope to build um around the docklands and where where dublin port yeah, is currently very imaginative yeah. and very doable and actually in fairness I, I recall um when i was first i think running for the council which was back in 2004 the pds had a very ambitious proposal to move um dublin port effectively um but they were talking about to, dundalk to to braemore Br- Br- um, yeah. and um oh, and anyway. Anyway, it, it became very controversial and it, it didn't happen. But that type of thinking um, is needed. And it might be a balance. It might be saying you retain some of the port facilities, but you move some. Um, but but there's or, huge Or distribute scope. the containers yeah. from the middle of Ireland rather than from the edge of Ireland. That's what most yeah. ports now uh, don't associate themselves with rivers. So in the past, you put your port at the mouth of the river because all the stuff came up the river. But that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. So what, what if you look at really new international ports, they tend to be in greenfield sites where there's a deep water. And you're absolutely right. The freight tends to be in fields miles away. Yeah. Okay. And you just have a train system. So this idea that, you know, if, if you've, 
if you look at Dublin Port and you look at the amount of this prime residential land upon which there are empty freight containers sitting, and then you look, Dublin Port is 600 acres of, of prime land. You could shift, in, the idea you could build a whole new city. And that's the type of thinking that you need. You need to say, Dublin Port works very well, it's just in the wrong place. Mm. Yeah, and it's kind of walkable, Lewisable, and all of those and metroable, and yes. anything, even busable. But yeah. the idea is that great cities, if you look at, look at Dublin itself, right? If you look at what we think of Dublin City, you think of you know, Fitzwilliam Square and O'Connell Street and College Green and Trinity Hill, all those big ones, they were all built in 70 years, between 1720 and 1800. And they built a new city 250 years ago here. And we, our generation, say, we're going to build a new city and it's going to face the water, it's going to face the sea and it's going to address huge accommodation problems, but it's also going to send, this is the sort of society we are. Right. But okay. it's all, I think, about what's yes, politically Mary. possible, isn't it? Like, And on that topic, Leo Varadkar himself has a piece in the Business Post on page 21 where he's talking about, you know, Ireland being this small country of almost 5 million people in a world of almost 8 billion. And he's trying to counter the argument that no matter what we do, it's not going to make any difference to climate change. We're just a drop in the ocean. But I think what he's trying to say is that not so much about big projects, but little ripples that will make an impact. But again, he, he has to come back, obviously, to the carbon tax. And he's saying, we know this won't be easy for everyone, certainly will not. So we will ensure that rather than there being big hikes in the carbon tax in any one year, we have a series of small planned annual increases. So it's about, you know, I think the government is in a rather unfortunate position. So it's, there's no big vision there. Well, they're coming to the end of their term. And I think a government like that planning a budget likes to have a few sweeteners, a few softeners, a few rewards here for its go, loyal here base. We go, yeah. But that's not possible now because this budget has to be designed, I think, as if we're looking at a, a no deal. OK, I think we'll come to it. In a moment. Just uh, I want to read these out because it's about public tra- transport. Marion, I work in a town next to the one where I live. I can drive down the motorway 10 minutes door to door. Heaven. Or <laughs> I can walk 15 minutes to a bus stop on the bus for 20 minutes and then walk mm. 20 minutes. Mm. Oh, so I think I'll stick to the car, which is a no five petrol, which I can't afford to change. Another says we've been paying carbon tax since 2012, which is true. Tell us how that money was spent and what effect did the billions taken in tax have on the climate? Another says your panelist talks about making public transport free, but what's the point if rural Ireland doesn't have it? Well, it'll have to be addressed, I suppose. We're living in the real world and that comes from Sligo. Morning, Marion. We just got a grant for fitting a new boiler in our house. Now we'll be penalised for using it. And that comes from (laughs) County Cork. Another says, I have a problem with carbon tax. I don't fly, use central heating in my house or eat meat. I don't buy... This is a very, very prudent person. I don't buy new clothing very often and have kept the same car for over a decade. But I have to travel in the countryside in my car for work. I don't want to pay more for that. It won't change my behaviour. It will just make me poorer. So everybody coming from a different perspective there. Now, uh, just very briefly, and, and we won't spend too long on it, I presume nothing much apart from that is going to happen in the in the budget. Carry on regardless. No fiver all round. 
Yeah, I just find it disappointing that, you know, well, just for me, and I'm speaking as an ordinary citizen, not as an economist, they're kind of like punctuation marks in a narrative where, you know, you're looking for some sign of where this story is going and where you've come from. And, you know, this government... And I'm not picking on this government in particular, but I mean, they've been in power now for almost a decade. It's a time, it's enough time to implement a strategy and to, ha- and to be clear where we're going in society. And I'm not clear. And most of the issues that, you know, were there in 2011, you know, that were highlighted and promised haven't been delivered. I'll give you just a couple of examples. Yeah. Health. You know, we were promised a free healthcare system, which everybody thought was free a brilliant healthcare. idea. Yeah, we were. A Dutch system, I remember, was being uh, it's free. Not, it's not free. You have to pay insurance. Pay insurance. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But we were, sorry. Free GP care. We were promised by 2016. That for was everybody. that was James Riley. That was James Riley. Um, you know, childcare. You know, I mean, again, this is a this is a problem that is, uh, or not a problem. It's a challenge that is 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 you know has been solved in in places like Norway or Finland. They you know, pay huge taxes. They do. They uh, but the thing is, is that they prioritise children, which I don't think is a bad thing to prioritise. Right. And and in a place like Norway, which is a very high standard of living, they cap at about three hundred euro uh, a month you know, childcare costs. And again, nothing really. Ha- we we saw a story there yesterday that um, I think childcare costs have gone up by three point six percent in the last. year. Year, we have the highest childcare costs in the world. And again, these things are very predictable. Children are not something that you don't expect. We, we know we will have children. Why aren't we dealing with it? And we expect two parents to work now most of the time. Uh, housing, you know, again, you know, in the 1930s when we had very few resources, yeah. slums were cleared, houses were built. Uh, even in the mid-1970s, uh, I saw a figure of 100,000 houses being built by the... the Maybe that was before NIMBYism. Mary, you wanted to come in there. Well, I think you could sum it up on page two headline in the Sunday world, poor will pay the price of Brexit in the budget. That's mm. what it comes down to. It's not that the government isn't spending, it's that they're being forced by what's happening with Brexit to spend it on something that we wouldn't have expected to have to spend it on. And that is that is the reality That of was it. our black swan, as they say. Exactly. And then Trump, yeah. But, yeah. but I mean, the, the British introduced the NHS right after World War Two. I mean, you, you, one can always find a reason not to introduce a bold vision and not to introduce one that costs money. I mean, like, you know, Finland... But when they yeah. did the sums on that insurance mm. that Mary referred to, they were staggering. Mm. I mean, they really were staggering. You couldn't expect most of our citizens I think I that. think there were a number of problems with it as well in the sense that well firstly the, the Dutch model hasn't worked out as well as might have been anticipated in the Netherlands um, but the second thing is that it was never really communicated or understood or even admitted that it would require the closure of acute hospitals around the country um, and that was inherent in the plan um, you know it was about building on this this concept of centres of excellence which have been hugely controversial yeah. which caused ministers to resign in the last government yeah. um, or, or TDs, t- in, TDs to resign in, in um, cancer treatment and um, all that outcomes have improved uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a big advocate of centres of excellence, um, but um, but unfortunately that wasn't communicated or understood, and there was no um, either public or political support, or at least insufficient, or at least it was interpreted that way. Um, and so, you know, it was a, certainly a big factor in why it didn't proceed. It was hugely politically controversial, um, and uh, you know, you can argue that that um, it it ought to have, or that a version of it, or perhaps a better plan might have um, uh, should have. Made Materialized, but it, but but clearly it was effectively dropped, and uh, and we are now really without any plan for the ha- for the well, health service. Well, there's no to care. Well, yeah, but I mean, if, well, in terms of of a plan that's being implemented, um, it's not really happening. Um, and if you look at how the H how the Department of Health and HSE are managing their budget, it's just one 
uh, overrun after another. Every single year, um, for as long as I can recall, um, there have been overruns in the health uh, service, the delivery of health care across the country, and that has been funded by effectively windfall taxes that were unanticipated in the previous budget. So it kind of makes a farce of budgeting, frankly. Um, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I I think there's a very important point there that we all focus on the extra money that the minister has to spend and we don't focus on the very large sum of money that's that is being spent anyway. Absolutely. And and it's it's um, 16 billion, I think. Now, that's a lot of money. But it's 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 the way the the way that's been spent. We don't discuss. We we look at what's the percentage increase for health, but we won't look at what is actually been spent now. And that that to me is what's lacking in the whole budget debate. Throughout throughout the delivery of public services. but it it seems weird to me that we have these annual budgets anyway in the first place. I just think it's it's kind of a jamboree for the political class. Like, will you do this? Will you do that? What, what I think would be much clearer if, if governments come in and said, OK, we've, we've got a four-year mandate. This is what we're going to do, right? Forget the budget. There's no budget, right? We will manage the basic accounting of how much money comes in, how much money we spend. This is what we're going to do. Get rid of all this. is just generates headlines, generates yeah. chat. It's... It's kind of a nonsense yeah. in the 21st century that you do this on an annual basis. Stephen Kinsler had a good piece in The Currency, um, the new publication oh, this yes, week, yeah. uh, quite a long read uh, along those, exactly along those lines. Um, and, you know, that is that is how we should be moving in terms of man- managing our public expenditure and our revenue raising measures. It should be multi-annual. It should be longer term. It should be a better vision. Yeah. Um, but it's very difficult to decouple the politics from that. Yeah. And that you could only have a four-year vision. I mean, wh- who wouldn't wish to be Dong Xiaoping, you know, where you can say <laughs> this is where it would be in, in 50 uh, years. Well, let's time. see how they get on in Hong Kong about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll catch to that later. <laughs> Mary, last word on this. Yeah, I think one thing you will see in the budget is some measures for self-employed people. I think maybe their their time has come and not before time. So really, Pascal Donoghue has the 2.8 billion to spend on budget but day. And really? 2.1 billion's already put aside. Yeah. It's got a it's got a name on it, you know. So that just leaves leaves just 700 million available for other measures outside the Brexit package. And I think that is, again, that is the key thing, as Mary has said. You're going to see no across-the-board tax cuts and no across-the-board welfare welfare increases, but there will be some targeted because the sad truth is because of Brexit, we're going to see job losses, thousands, like the figure of 10,000 has been put about. And it's it's frightening. It is frightening. Uh, Fine Gael would argue that the construction of new houses has accelerated in the last few years and thousands of homes are being added to the social housing stock. Well, obviously, uh, a lot of people uh, would say not enough. Anyway, we'll take a break. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. The Marion Finucane Show on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Tesco Club Card. Helping you save more every time you shop. Tesco. Every little helps. Welcome back to the programme. Now, uh, there's been a lot of coverage in the British press, obviously, over the weekend um, on what's going to happen because we're ticking down uh, to D-Day as in the 31st of October. Uh, Mr Johnson is writing in two papers himself. Uh, There's somebody else interviewing him in another one. 
uh, there is an editorial in the Telegraph, but it is the Telegraph, that could <laughs> have been written from 10 Downing Street, but I'm sure it wasn't. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of pressure on and blame game and all that kind of thing coming up. And the stakes are very, very, very high. I was reading an article that you wrote last week, uh, Mary Minahan, about mm. your own childhood. Yeah. And crossing the border with your dad, uh, you were in the back of the car. Remind us, because I don't think that the British understand this at all. I think a lot of people in Ireland don't understand it either because it was, as they say, up there. And mm. a long time ago. But yeah. uh, I, what I was trying to say, I did an Irish woman's diary, which sits at the top of the letters page of the Irish Times. And I suppose my childhood w- was unexceptional, but very different to my contemporaries in the Republic. Mm. So uh, it's it was just a memory piece about growing up during the Troubles. And I think a lot of Northerners, a lot of border people now, Things we might have suppressed for years because they're so uncomfortable. It's all coming flooding back now. And I think Brexit really has got to be the catalyst for that. And that's why we're angry when we hear Boris Johnson describing as describing border controls as a technical issue. Because I was talking about actually not crossing the border, would you believe, but crossing a bridge. Oh, that's in right. Derry. I beg your pardon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, crossing the border was even harder, but crossing a bridge and, and, and coming up to an RUC, a joint RUC British Army checkpoint. And I just talked about, you know, perfecting an expression face as you watched the British boy soldiers uh, training their guns on you. And I mean, I, that we were, stuck out for me. Yeah. British boy soldiers training their guns on me. You're not terrified. Well, or was it ordinary? That's what I'm trying to say. When we were kids, we didn't understand that such proximity to weaponry was odd and unusual. And it wasn't really until I went to England and I saw a British Bobby on the beat with his little constable's helmet and his little truncheon on his hip. I I thought this person was someone in fancy dress. I couldn't believe that that was the policeman. And I know it's not normal that the sound of helicopters transports me back to sunny days playing in the garden. And I have a a very bright little person at home who uh, shortly before he turned six in the summer asked me what a bomb was. And I, I almost started to cry because I thought, my goodness, when I was that age, I knew exactly what a bomb was. I knew what to do during a bomb scare. And that's not right. It's not normal that children knew all that and saw all that. Tell us about the neighbours moving out. Yeah, I talked as well about how uh, we uh, there was a gathering in our home of neighbours who were moving out and you know, it was a quite a pleasant evening and the room went a bit quiet when someone said that, uh, the thing the things you do to avoid giving the bin men a Christmas box because if you remember back to the old days people used to tuck a little bit of money in under the bin yep. lid uh, and it wasn't until a long time later I realised those people were getting out very, very quickly and it turned out their their father uh, was a Protestant and a policeman and in an unconnected incident uh, the IRA had come round and shot a Catholic neighbour of ours Uh, and I I would imagine that made it kind of uncomfortable afterwards and people were much more conscious of their security and the night that incident happened that the man across the street was shot I remember a reporter coming and knocking on our door and uh, my dad talking to him reluctantly certainly not giving a name or anything like that and just seeing him talking out into the dark and how frightening that was that uh, I I can remember my mother being really concerned that that we were speaking out in in such a way you know it, it was a very very odd way to grow up when you think about it and 
that's and the, the way it and was. the other thing is because these things can just be gratuitous you talked about um Somebody coming up and saying the equivalent, I'm not quoting you exactly, like, good morning, Mr. Minahan. Well, yes, that's the whole thing. Uh, when we get to these checkpoints, I think that's why we've just got such an aversion to checkpoints. You would be greeted by name, by first name, actually. And uh, obviously, that's because you were passing through these checkpoints every day of the week. You know, it wasn't an unusual occurrence for us. Uh, and yet you'd still be asked to show your documents. Uh, you know, and that's... It's and this that was whole the RUC. Yes, of giving information that was already known. So, uh, you know, that was just something else that was really extraordinary. But I know your your colleague and my colleague, uh, Joe Duffy and Freya McClements, have a book coming out this week about yes. uh, the children who died during the Troubles. So, uh, you know, obviously it's so important to say there were so many kids who never made it through the Troubles. And I'm, I'm delighted that, you know, two people of such calibre have taken on that very, very sad project and, and made, a, made a book about it. But, yeah. you know, the bigger picture, I suppose... Uh, it's extraordinary that British politics now has allowed itself to be consumed by this concept of the backstop. I just think if you stop the average person on the street in Liverpool and ask them what the backstop was, would they really they know? I think know here they'd va- well, they'd vaguely know it was something to do with Northern Ireland. And for the life of me, I, uh, since when did they ever really care that much about Northern Ireland? I mean, the truth is Northern Ireland is being left to rot on the vine. Well, you try getting a medical appointment up there. The schools are really struggling to get, you know, the basic equipment for their children. It's not being looked after. OK, let me move on to, and I think this was also the Telegraph. The Telegraph goes very big on this today. And it's an article by David Trimble uh, and Roderick Crawford. PM's proposal is better than the EU's backstop betrayal. Now, that's the word on the headline. And he goes through elements of the Good Friday Agreement and he interprets it differently to what I have heard say from our own spokespeople. And this always, I think, if it's healthy, comes down to some class of a fudge one way or the other. Don't go back on. You had a look at that article. I did, and it's it's quite a brief article, and it's more assertions than than uh, than something that's backed up with 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 facts. And I, I would actually refer people to Mark Durkin's Twitter account. He has a very detailed kind of rebuttal of this point because there's been an attempt to devise a mechanism whereby consent in the Northern Ireland terms, which is always understood as a majority of people in Northern Ireland, and indeed that was a concession for nationalists in Northern Ireland, considering it's it's the origins of the of, of, of the, the six counties. Um, and now it's been moved to unionist consent. And indeed, the very people who rejected the Good Friday Agreement, the DUP, are arguing that it builds in a veto for them. Uh, and in, in Mark Durkin's tweet, Twitter, Twitter account, he says, the UK government is meant to exercise rigorous impartiality on behalf of all in Northern Ireland, which of course is true. Uh, but to rig a wrecking consent lock for one party uh, would be wrong. Consent is understood as requiring a need for change of the status quo. In that case, why not seek consent for leaving the customs union or altering the terms of the single market alignment? Because what David Trimble is arguing is that by keeping Northern Ireland in the status quo, somehow you're changing something against the will of, well, de facto, the unionist people. Uh, and that's even indeed is Arlene Foster's terminology. She's saying that the Irish government is riding roughshod over unionism, which is a very interesting and subtle shift from... I used to, I used to interview unionist politicians in the early 90s when doing my own... Yeah doctoral research and um, I remember that the argument 
arguments that they used to put against United Ireland, well, firstly, largely have evaporated. I mean, economic, well, not, not that it's evaporated, but, well, they were, no, but the Republic was considered to be, was a much poorer state yeah. um, and and indeed was a much more conservative state. Marital divorce, for example, was 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 still uh, prohibited. And and they used to say we're very close to Scotland more than any than, than the Republic. And of course, now the Scottish are viewed as some kind of mm. ultra separatists who the Union certainly don't want to emulate. Um, and and now you see the shift from the majority, you know, the majority of people in Northern Ireland to a majority of unionist people. Right. And that's a very different shift. It, yeah, it, it is very interesting. And I went to David Trimble's article after you, Mary, because he was reared in that environment too. Now, mm-hmm. from a very different perspective, mm-hmm. uh, presumably when he was a young boy, I don't know. But, Mary, if I could come to you, Mary Whelan, we have a lot of things that we need to watch here. Uh, we want to stay within the EU. We don't want to be punished economically. We don't want to return to the kind of descriptions of, of life uh, that Mary tried. We also want a good relationship with our next door neighbours, which seems to be getting fractured and in ways that we we would not have wished for. Where to? How to? What to? I mean, I was watching a lot of the coverage last night on the various BBC, Sky News, all those kind of stations, and they were talking about, um, you know, that they'd wreck the EU if the EU didn't do what was required. <clears throat> and they sounded, now, truly, just last night, they sounded like a bunch of boot boys, you know, that they'd put Farage in there, that they'd wreck the, the budgets and all that. This is not conducive to long-term warm relationships. No, if you look at how British policy has changed, if you go back to the 80s, in the, the bad old days, as it were, uh, Peter Brook, who was then the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, made the famous declaration that Britain had no Long-term. selfish, strategic or economic interests in, in preventing uh, the United Ireland, or in Northern Ireland, I should say. And we've come a long, long way from, from that to uh, Northern Ireland now being used, in a sense, uh, in the infighting in the Tory party, which happens to be the party of government. I think you very clearly described the objectives of the Irish government. They are enormous. They are huge. But the real problem is, who does the EU have as an interlocutor in this? I mean, to have a negotiation, you must have on the other side of the table people who are clear as to their objectives. He's very clear. Out, out, out. No, I think he's As clear. a predecessor of his said. Well, <laughs> I would disagree. I think he's clear and his objective is to get elected. Because he's never been elected as prime minister. Yeah. I think that's his objective. What his objective is for the future... UK relationship with the EU to me is utterly unclear. Um, the fact that he will not publish the 40-page legal document that he's given the EU suggests that he doesn't want his own people to know what his objectives really are. I think another thing you need for a proper negotiation is the capacity of your interlocutor to be able to implement whatever you negotiate. It is by no means clear, despite what the Tory party are saying today, that they can command a majority for anything. And the third thing you need for a successful negotiation is that you can trust your interlocutor. And that's really the heart of the problem. Well, I was thinking about this too, as I'm sure half the country was. I thought that on behalf of the British government that Theresa May signed an agreement. I thought that on behalf of the British government there was a Good Friday agreement. Like when you sign with the government 
are you in? Can you trust it? Or can they just say, sorry, if we change governments in five years' time, forget about that? But the strange thing here is that this wasn't a change of government. It was a change of personnel in the government. And that is a very, very strange thing. It has happened before. A totally new government, um, different political parties. They may have campaigned on the basis of resiling from an international agreement. That you can understand, but that you have a change of the personnel within the government, that the prime minister is somebody who was foreign secretary when the December uh, 2017 uh, deal was was done. Uh, When the withdrawal agreement was negotiated, he eventually voted for it. So um, one of the many uh, things that Johnson has done uh, to damage his own country is that he has damaged his international credibility. I mean, who can negotiate with Britain now in the future at trade deals, these ambitious trade deals, with any assurance? But you know, life goes on and they will. You know, you, you can be stand harder. in your high horse and say whatever well, and feel cheated and that we thought we had agreement and we don't have agreement. But you know, Put not your trust in princes or politicians. No politicians around the table today. <laughs> Lucindy, formerly. How do how do how, recovering recovering? <laughs> uh, how do you read that? Um, well, I think I think the point that we can't um, ignore or set aside is that um, the withdrawal agreement was rejected by Westminster. Yeah, three um, times. So 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 Theresa May did negotiate the deal. But the deal was rejected um, by Parliament. And, you know, there is a similar ratification process on the EU side where the European Parliament has to um, approve. So yeah. um, so in that sense, um, that sort of it's it's not simply a question of Boris Johnson riding into town and reneging on a deal that was negotiated by Theresa May. It had already been rejected on, on a number of occasions by by Westminster Um and whether we like it or not, that's just that's just a fact. Um, I think at this point we are sort of beyond the point of return. So Boris Johnson, to me, and I've written about this in my column today in the in the Business Post. To me, Boris Johnson, um, what it, it, the the primary objective of his proposals, um, which were submitted during the week, um was to apportion blame to the European Union. So um, I don't believe that anybody seriously thinks that these proposals address the concerns around um, customs checks. And in fact, they raise more issues than they than they solve because they're talking about simplification of processes around um, the single market and the customs union, but no, no concrete um, sort of elucidation of how that would happen. Um, and why should the EU change its own in, it rules around the internal function of the single market, it's it you know that's not going to happen. It would open all sorts of um, uh, other issues for other third countries and other potential future relationships with um, other countries that border the European Union and the single market. So I mean, it, it's 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 fantastical in a sense. Um, they've proposed different tariff arrangements for SMEs as distinct from um, large companies. Again, you know, there's no basis to that, and arguably would would breach WTO rules, not to mention single market and um, um, the, the the common commercial policy of the European Union, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, and then there's the issue of consent, which um, has already been uh, alluded to. So there, there, so it raises more questions, in my opinion, than it than it answers. But is um, it is there within there <clears throat> the basis? Because the I don't believe I don't believe so, frankly. So I think everybody's pussyfooting around it. Uh, I think the 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 government here and the European Commission um, are trying to be 
conciliatory. Yeah. Um, because they have to be. Um, because otherwise they will, you know, they're already being blamed by the Telegraph and others, but they'll be blamed even further. Um, so they have to be seen to engage. But I don't think that Boris Johnson seriously expects that this will form the basis for an agreement at do the you, EU summit next you week. Really not? No, not at all. No, no. I don't I don't think and it possibly even Simon Govney saying, Well, there's something there we can work on. Well, but then he said something kind of different in the doll the other day. So, um, look, I, I, I think I think what's happening is everybody's trying to not close the door. I think it, it would be um, it would be a cause for some hope if um, negotiations could could restart, get underway. Um, but in reality, nothing is going to be okay. agreed at the European summit in, in, in um, the week after yeah, next. Yeah. Can I go to you, David? Because I saw you nodding there when when um, uh, talking to Mary. Things go on. You know, I know that sounds like such a silly thing to say, but it's not. It's not. And in the week where history was restored to, you know, the um, the, the junior cert project, people have broken treaties. People have broken their words. Strong people have squashed weak people since yes. the beginning of time. And, and also countries unravel. And I think what we're seeing... I was up in Belfast yesterday and uh, I think what we're seeing, because uh, I've got family up there who are divided, who half voted for Brexit, half didn't. So those conversations are pretty, they get very, very heated. Um, but I think we're seeing the beginning of the unravelling of the United Kingdom, a country that came together as a unified force about 400 years ago. Uh, Britain being an idea that really tried to suppress English nationalism and create a different story for what was projecting English power around the world, codenamed Britain. I, I think that's over. And I think countries unravel. And do I, I, you really? I really do. Yeah. I, I think that I look at Brexit much less about the UK declaring war on the EU as England declaring war on the UK. And every time I travel there, the volume of English nationalism, the sense of English nationalism, this weird thing that you get in nationalism, this crazy combination of hurt and overconfidence, which is a weird and thing. And victimhood. Well, so the victim, so the hurt, the victimhood is, it's this very strange psychological weakness that yeah. big nationalists have. Mm -hmm. So you feel you're a victim of some as of yet unknown, unspecified oppressor, maybe the EU. Yet, when you get rid of that oppressor, you feel that you have this extraordinary potential to overcome the world. So you've got this very, yeah. very strange psychology going on. And if and you think it was two generations, Max, really? You know, the, when there was the Empire and Queen Victoria and Empress of India. So things unravel very, very quickly. And, you know, it's not outrageous to say you see a country like Yugoslavia, it unravelled very quickly and had you said it was going to unravel five years, people, people said no, they'll come to some great, the Croats, the Serbs they'll do a the deal, you know, people. blah 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 yeah. they, they were all washed away like stow off a ditch once things kicked off. Mm -hmm. I think we in Ireland, because you, you posed a question to, to Mary, like, what do we do the big picture? I think we have to entertain that we are seeing the end of Britain and that Johnson will go to an election if he goes to election under the cloud of an extension, he will go to the right to out-Brexit the Brexit party. Yeah. So the Conservative Party will become an English Nationalist Party because that's what they have to do. Then the Scottish Nationalists will win hands down up north. And they're they going will to be Nationalists in Wales. They will call an election. And if you think that this is the end, this is the beginning mm -hmm. of the breakup of a country. OK, I see you nodding away there, Donica. Yeah, for several reasons. And you've loads of experience 
on the far side of Europe, so to speak. Oh, that's right. And and it's, you know, it's almost 30 years now since the Soviet Union collapsed. And what's often forgotten is it wasn't Lithuania or Georgia, or these small countries that brought the end of the Soviet Union. It was Boris Yeltsin and the Russian Federation. It was their desire to be free of the obligations, not to be subsidising the Tajiks and the Uzbeks. That was what brought the end of the Soviet Union, because Lithuania couldn't have brought it down by itself. It was it was from within. It was from the largest partner in the Union. And similarly, I completely agree with what David's saying. There was a march of 100,000 people in, in, in Edinburgh yesterday looking for a second independence referendum for Scotland. And, you know, you it, it's... And that's why it's so ironic that the DUP have hitched their political wagon to the very fundamentalists who cared least about the North and Ireland generally. Because they valued their Britishness. And I mean, if you take the Good Friday Agreement, it was all about identity. You can be British, you can be Irish, you can be both. And And that did it. And that's how nationalism can cloud the mind. Because if they had thought about it rationally, they should be making different kinds of partnerships. We really need to appreciate... Uh, guys, I think sometimes in the South we have this sort of default position that they don't really feel British. That if we could only just, yeah, they really they do. do. They really do. They really yeah. do. And 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 Arlene Foster does. And they and really do. And, they really, and, and we, we've got to really respect that. That's how they feel. Yeah. Now the problem with the DUP. This is a party that never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Every time they're given something to do the right thing. They seem to do the wrong, illogical thing, which is because they have this crazy, back to the psychology, this fear tempered with a little bit of arrogance, a little bit of superiority, and they never make the right decision. But they have no grounds for fear. I mean, they've lived through the IRA. They have lived which through is why, violence which is why the we, other side Which is why we in the South have to, to begin be the process of yeah, actually I think telling have, them. And let's, and let's not ignore the fact that the DUP have been governing, well, up until two, two and a half, three years ago, have been governing in Northern Ireland for a very long period of time. So, OK, can yeah. I ask you one question before I go to my break? Do you think Orban will break ranks to suit Boris? I don't, no, I don't. Any of them? No, no, no. I think they, I think uh, I, I think Orban has been under a lot of pressure from the EU, from all of the institutions for the last number of years. Huge pressure, and at every opportunity, he has supported the EU position on Brexit. I don't think there's a hope in hell of Orban breaking ranks. And okay. he's just about to have his commissioner um, affirmed by the European Parliament in the next week or so. Okay, we'll take a break. Podcast the Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Welcome back to the programme. Now, Hong Kong, as you heard them uh, talking there in the headlines, is currently experiencing its worst political crisis in decades. During the week, the chief executive, Carrie Lam, invoked emergency powers to ban protesters from wearing face masks. The move was a bid to end months of violent demonstrations, but instead saw thousands of protesters returning to the streets. I'm joined now by Aaron McNicholas, who's a freelance journalist in Hong Kong. Uh, Aaron, what is the situation like right now? And I understand that the city ground to a halt yesterday. The city essentially grounded to a halt yesterday with um, every single subway station, with the sole exception of the Airport Express, being shut down. That is because on Friday night we saw scenes of mass vandalism and mass unrest hours after Carrie Lam announced this ban on face masks. Half of the network um, was still closed at the, at the dawn, at the break of dawn this morning, and even more of them have been closed afresh 
um, by the time we get to the evening today. So the city in that sense has very much ground to a halt. Protesters have continued to flood the streets wearing their masks as if nothing has changed since Friday. But the anger is there and it's actually gotten worse because it's not even just about the simple fact of a face mask ban. It's about the fact that emergency laws were invoked. They were not put through Hong Kong's local parliament. And that essentially means that although Carrie Lam did not say directly that Hong Kong is in a state of emergency, she is invoking the power that is there to pass emergency laws without going through parliamentary scrutiny. So the question on everyone's mind is, if you can ban face masks that way, what else can you do? Can you monitor communications? Can you shut down instant messaging apps? Can you do all of these things that would be a lot more draconian than a face mask ban and could, in theory, be done under this emergency uh, regulation? But they can shut down those apps, can't they? Because I understand if you go on to mainland China now um, that a lot of what you use in your normal life just doesn't exist. That is the heart and the principle of one country, two systems, which is the constitutional principle that Hong Kong is supposed to be governed by. Yes, it is part of China under one country, but it has a separate system. And that is why when you come to Hong Kong, you can use Google, you can use Facebook, you can use Twitter, all of these things that are not allowed to be used on mainland China, but can be used without hindrance in Hong Kong. They can still be used without hindrance in Hong Kong today, and they will continue to do so. And I would imagine that there's no immediate risk to any of the big tech companies, but on the more secure messaging apps that protesters are using to communicate, there is widespread fear, whether it is founded or unfounded, that that will be one of the next things that might happen under this emergency regulation. Right. I mean, when Chris Patton negotiated uh, the, the, the changeovers, it was to be one country, two systems for 50 years. Listen, we've been watching this and it's ticking away kind of in our, in our consciousness. Well, it might stop ticking now. Have we lost the line? We have. Yeah. OK, let me go. Let me go if I may to Peter. We'll see if we can get him back uh, because uh, I'm joined by Peter Hamilton, who's Assistant Professor of Modern Chinese History at Trinity College, Dublin. Uh, Peter, I mean, I know that you know your territory here and that the, the plan was one country, two systems. No question who is the stronger partner. I mean, partner doesn't even enter into it. Um, why hasn't Beijing moved? What is the plan? What is the, why is Hong Kong still so important to it? Is it for political reasons or commercial reasons or international trading reasons or money reasons or capitalism reasons? <laughs> I would say all of the above. Um... China has China would be is very cautious about any kind of recurrence of the Tiananmen incident as it's known and so much of the security apparatus that has developed inside mainland China since then is designed to prevent such a crisis from ever occurring again um, for Beijing to authorize some kind of direct military intervention into Hong Kong things would have to be a lot worse I think than they are now um, they're very aware of the severe moral, uh, soft power, foreign policy, economic repercussions that would ensue from such an intervention, and are wisely cautious of of kind of the unknown variables there. It would open a huge 
can of can of worms, as we say, uh, that and probably you know, uh, be broadcast around the world on every on every phone and and screen. Yeah, which they wouldn't like, but they'd put up no. with it. <laughs> I mean, they did Tiananmen Square. Now you're not allowed to yeah. talk about it, and if you raise <laughs> it in an interview with anybody when you're there, they look over their shoulder with fear in their eyes, as if they didn't they didn't know what you were talking about, um, and it doesn't come up in any of the official histories. But we saw it on television. Exactly, and even then, there was very significant disagreement within the party about that move. Um, very strong opposition within the military, within other high-level cabinet and, and uh, state council positions. Um, so we can be we can be confident that there would be significant disagreement even now about that. Um, you know, and the the as you brought up, there's just so many ways in which Hong Kong is still very important to China. It's still China's most most important financial center, uh, even though it's comparatively less than it was before. It's still a very important node of financial transactions, of trade, of legal accounting, etc., professional services. Um, and you would have to accept that all of those could go haywire if you intervened militarily. Um, and that's, that's and a very what would that mean to them? I mean, because in a in a funny way, they can kind of work this agreement. But as I understand from the world of money and capitalism and trading and all of that, that Hong Kong is kind of useful to them. Very useful. Very very useful. Um, so many of the international companies that operated China operate through Hong Kong. Many Chinese companies like Lenovo and Hire are actually legally Hong Kong companies. You know, there's all sorts of invisible systems that Hong Kong facilitates in terms of China's economy, as well as more uh, surreptitious things like money, uh, getting money out of China, etc. Of um, course, yeah. Which I, I you know, and so that, if you're a senior party person. Uh, you, you say that autonomy has been shifting in recent years in Hong Kong and you give the example of education. Yes. yes. Can you and explain that? That's part of what's fueling all of this um, is a much longer history before the extradition bill of perceived creep by China in terms of influence behind the scenes into areas that are supposed to be autonomous. Um, so the example of education is a good one in which that's supposed to be a local issue decided by the Hong Kong government and still technically is on paper. But the introduction a few years ago of a, pro- a proposed patriotic education curriculum uh, was seen as Beijing's kind of creeping hand uh, trying to intervene in local matters and steer people towards accepting uh, China and China's influence. And as with the extradition bill then, protests successfully got it, got it shelved. Um, but in all over the place in terms of money, in terms of Hong Kong government policy, uh, in terms of its attitude towards the press, and now with things like the extradition bill, people perceive at least creeping mainland Chinese influence. It is but they're not, not surprised, are they? Are, are, are they surprised? I don't think they're surprised anymore, but I think that people are disappointed. You know, we're nowhere near close to 2047. <laughs> you know? um, and kind of that looming horizon about 
that is unknown about Hong Kong's future. We're still decades away from there. Right. Well, um, I was there. All- I was working there when Chris Patton was there just before the changeover mm. and people in Hong Kong were absolutely petrified. They really were at that stage. They didn't know what was going to happen in terms of, of their human rights. And I think while they didn't think 50 years was a very long time, because people in that neck of the woods take a longer view uh, than we do here. Listen, I want to go back to Aaron McNicholas, who's in um, Hong Kong. Aaron, how clear and articulate is the focus of all of this demonstration? Gone again. No? Hello, Aaron. Oh, there he is, yeah. Um, in the sense that it started off on extradition. What's it about now? Well, well, sorry, sorry Donoghue, you wanted to come in? Yeah, I, I mean, from the Chinese perspective, when they got Hong Kong in, in 1997, it was a big economic prize. But within that, there was kind of like the threat of a democratic virus that might spread to other parts of China. It was yeah. only a few years after the Tiananmen Square massacre. I'll, I'll call it that rather than an incident. And, um, you know, they, they were very also conscious of what happened in the Soviet Union. I mean, Gorbachev introduced democratic and economic reforms at the same time. So at the same time that people were hurting because of reform, democracy gave them the opportunity to articulate that. And the end was the collapse of the Soviet Union. So the Chinese adopted a different way. Uh, they, they let loose the purse strings, but not that, but not not the headstrings. Absolutely. So yeah. they, they, they kept uh, control of politics, whereas they, they are now a, a hyper-capitalist system. They're not communist in anything but name. Yeah. And that's why Hong Kong is, is so important. That's why it's like a, a Trojan horse almost for democracy. And they have to treat it warily. Um, they don't want to go back to the Tiananmen Square massacres, but also it's a signal to where they're at politically. Uh, and, and also, of course, there are other parts of China which get much less uh, coverage, places like the Uyghurs in Western uh, China, uh, to Tibetans, of course. And yeah. of course, they're trying to get Taiwan back, so to speak. So yeah. how they treat Hong Kong also sends a message to others who are looking for autonomy and more freedoms in China. Right. You you, you, you were in the Soviet Union. Oh, well, in, yeah. in, in, in Russia, sorry. When it was breaking up. Yes. The most amazing was... thing is I was there learning Russian and you were unaware the country was breaking up. It's really funny, you know, people outside knew a hell of a lot more about what was going on uh, than we did who were in Russia. But... In terms of Hong Kong, I think Hong Kong is incredibly important to China because it allows China, gives China the permission to suggest that it is tolerant of various different uh, various different arrangements, let's say. Yeah. And uh, the interesting thing is that, you know, ideas are contagious. In the same way as diseases are contagious, ideas are contagious. Democracy, this idea of personal freedom, is a very attractive, contagious idea. And... I suppose the Chinese really need to be able to try and suppress it sufficiently that it doesn't gain any toehold in China. The interesting thing about the internet, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've been to China a good few times. China controls the internet. It switches it on and off. You know, everyone says, oh, the internet's multinational and you can't control it. You can if you want. And they have shown, and also their own Facebook, WeChat, is much more sophisticated than anything Facebook have. They're much more on, they're much more technologically savvy population than the United States. Their technology is incredibly advanced. But there is a sort of, it seems to me when you're there, that there's a sort of a social contract between the state and the people, which is, here's the parameters within which we can operate. Don't go over to the extreme because it'll attract heat. And I think the 
a most interesting thing about the whole Chinese story is how phenomenally important China is to the whole world. Yep. I was in Africa recently and I asked taxi driver, what's the biggest change? This was in South Africa. And I was expecting to say Afrikaners or whites or Mandela. And he said, the Chinese dudes. He said, they're everywhere, <laughs> right? And I asked him and he said, they're trading, they're buying, they're selling, they're building infrastructure. They've bought up Zimbabwe. All that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So what we have is we've got China operating what you could call kind of checkbook diplomacy. So they're buying influence all over the world. Also, don't forget that state capitalism a la China with the genuflection to democracy is actually the policy that suits vast majority of the world. So if you go for a walk from Shanghai to Istanbul, long I'll walk now, yeah. in fairness, you won't meet a democracy, like a liberal yeah. democracy. Yeah. You have state democracy, you have state capitalism, all the way through. So our idea that what we do is sacrosanct, or is in some way more superior. Yeah. Nonsense. Right. Well, well, and and you only have to look out the door more or less to see that uh, here. I'm going to have one last go to Aaron McNicholas. Just on that question that this started about extradition, what's it about now? Well, first of all, let me apologise for the connection. That's problem. OK. Um, you're correct. Absolutely correct. This started as an argument over extradition. But that was only the flashpoint that triggered a wide uh, variety of discontent coming to the surface, not for the first time. About a few days up to a week or so after the very first protest in June, there were five demands articulated relating to uh, what Hong Kong protesters want to see. The biggest one of those, of course, is this idea of universal suffrage, one person, one vote, which Hong Kong has never seen, whether it has been under British rule or Chinese rule. When the handover was happening in the lead up to 1997, Hong Kong people were promised that they would be able to elect their own leader in time in a gradual and orderly way is what the Chinese uh, governments were, how they phrased this. Um, but in 2014, five years ago, we found out exactly what Beijing had in mind when it comes to how Hong Kong people would elect their own leader. And that was, yes, it can be one person, one vote, but the two or three candidates that you will have on the ballot paper will be chosen by a committee of maybe 1,200 people. And that committee system was widely perceived to be in favour of Beijing's interests. So essentially there was a screening process there which would have prevented it to be a genuine democratic framework. And that caused a huge protest movement five years ago, and we're at this situation again. Although universal suffrage is just but one of the demands, it is something that will continually cause unrest in Hong Kong until it is adequately resolved. Also, since this has started four months ago, there have been numerous um, incidences in terms of how the police have handled the operation, which, rightly or wrongly, has given rise among the protesters to a feeling that the, the police are not impartial and that they are not acting um, within the boundaries of the law. Whether that's right or wrong is a question that we can ask, but in four months there have numerous, been numerous incidences that have given rise to this belief. So when you go out on the streets now, what you're going to hear is anger towards the police, a feeling that they're not being impartial in executing their duty. And just in the last week or two, you've started to hear chants of disbanding the police force. Now, we can go back to our own national history and think about how long it took for the RUC to be disestablished. And we think to ourselves, well, it's only been four months in Hong Kong. We're not at that point yet, of course. 
But that is a chance that you're starting to hear now, and it just goes to show just how um, angry some of these people are. It is so difficult from from a distance, and very often things start off as a kind of a a natural outburst by people and demonstration. Uh, but it's very hard to keep that going without organisation and focus and planning and all those kinds of things. It can't be spontaneous all the time, or can it? Um, certainly the police think they're dealing with a situation where there's a large majority of relatively peaceful protesters and then a smaller minority of um, non-peaceful protesters that uh, must be organized in some way. My discussions with those frontline protesters who are willing to use some degree of violence would suggest that they don't have what you might call a central command. They're simply operating in small groups of 10 or 20, and they are sharing ideas with each other and coordinating a little bit, but there's no one leader telling those few hundred or few thousand non-peaceful protesters, this is what we'll do this week, this is what methods we'll use, so now we'll go ahead and do that. Um, there certainly has been a perception that's been holding up that this is a leaderless protest movement. And certainly for the really hardcore protesters who are willing to use some degree of violence, their attitude is, if you have a leader, that leader will be found, will be arrested. And you can't have a situation in their eyes where if one person gets arrested, then everything falls apart. So that is their perception, and that is why this is continuing on. <clears throat> and not to be excessively crass, how are they earning a crust if they've, if they've been protesting for four months? Like, how do you buy the groceries? By the way, I gather the supermarkets have been stripped of groceries. Um, it would be a bit premature to say they've been stripped of groceries. Certainly in the last few days and since the face mask ban has been announced, the major supermarket chains have been closing early, um, much earlier than normally, and there has been a, a rush in certain areas for people to buy uh, goods before those early closures take effect. But it would be a little premature to suggest that um, there is massively empty shelves in every single supermarket right. in Hong okay. Kong. Okay. That is a bit, bit of an exaggeration, but certainly... It wasn't the case two or three months ago that supermarkets were closing their doors earlier. That is a relatively new development just in the last three days. And it does really start to feel like that, from that point of view, that the unrest is um, escalating. Um, what, did the, what was the reaction in Hong Kong uh, as they observed the 70 years celebrations in mainland China? Well, a few weeks before that, we had a leaked audio recording from Carrie Lam, which was um, later um, obtained by the Reuters news agency and distributed. And she said at that point, this was, I think, about late August, she said that there was still a plan to have an October 1st celebration, but she had no expectation that the protest would be over by then. So she had very low expectation for what kind of modest or relatively muted celebration would be possible in Hong Kong on October 1st. There was a, a, a short, solemn ceremony in the morning on October 1st. Um, certainly not with the same pomp and circumstance and uh, fancy uh, presentation that we were used to in previous years. And the normal fireworks display that happens every year in Hong Kong on October 1st, that did not go ahead. That was cancelled. Um, so the essential, the the, I guess, presentation of the day was quite 
uh, quite muted compared to previous years. And of course, naturally, we had people still coming out into the streets and expressing their discontent. And October 1st, as you will have seen from the news reports, was also the first incident um, throughout this movement where a police officer did use his... uh, revolver to shoot a protester in order to, um, from his point of view, with a live round, from the point of view of the police officer, in order to save his own life and the lives of his colleagues. And that was the explanation that was given. But that was still the first time throughout this movement that a protester was shot. May I go back uh, to Peter, uh, please? Peter, how how do they handle the other autonomous regions? I mean, there was the whole business of Tibet and by God, they nailed that one down. If you disagree with the authorities, they're not um, shy about um, showing you their displeasure. Uh, and yet I think things have eased in Tibet. And and then there were other autonomous reasons. There's the one, I can't remember the name of it, where, where the first port of call, so to speak, when you go on to the mainland. Yeah, the, they're all different. We have Hong Kong, Macau, Xinjiang, uh, the Muslim um, majority districts in the northwest, and Tibet. And all are governed uh, quite differently from one another. Hong Kong, in that sense, has been very privileged. Um, it has, uh, Tibet and Xinjiang have not enjoyed the same freedoms of speech, press, etc., religion, that Hong Kong has for for so many years, even since 1997. Um, the special economic zones, like Shenzhen, um, are economically different than the rest of mainland China, but not in terms of political yeah, or legal rights that are saying. different. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, it's all very... There's a kind of a nervousness around that this can't go on uh, forever and ever. Mary, can I just come to you before I, I go to the break on this? In your diplomatic life, have you had an involvement with um, with China? Uh, yeah, the first time I went to Beijing was sometime in the 1980s. And the last time I went before I retired was about uh, 2014. And it was absolutely amazing to see the transformation. Um, and whereas Hong Kong, the first time we went out, then we went through Hong Kong. And Hong Kong was New York to backwater that was Beijing. And by the 19, uh, or 2014, it, the situation was totally totally changed. Um, And I think one must acknowledge that what uh, China has done, it has lifted millions, um, billion people probably out of poverty. Um, And it has certainly been a force of stability. Having killed how many tens of millions in the Cultural Revolution. But I I do uh, worry about Hong Kong now because at some point... um, there has to be a resolution or it won't be a policing matter anymore. And although one can criticise the police, it is still a situation being handled by the police. Mm. It seems to have developed its own momentum. It's not clear, as we've just heard, what the demands are. It's not clear if there's people that one can discuss the demands with, in a sense. Um, I would wonder how much longer Carrie Lam will be there. I mean, she is reluctantly, I think, occupying that position. Uh, she doesn't... She doesn't carry herself with authority. Uh, she doesn't look like she really wants to be there. Yeah. Um, and you would just wonder where it goes from here. I'm sure that Beijing would wish to um, sort this out in, in a way that preserved the the reality maybe to some extent of uh, one country, two systems and I don't think it would go the way of what has happened to the Uyghur people or I, I don't think that's possible because the media will know what's going on in Hong Kong so it's not like it's far away and out of sight um, but I, I would 
worry if this continues. And I was very struck when um, Aaron started speaking first, he referred to um, mass vandalism and mass unrest. Now, maybe that was a slip of the tongue, but even the word mass vandalism suggests a situation where civil control is. Yeah. And, and apparently that is the nightmare for yeah. Beijing, that yeah. kind of chaos. Is it? Because anyway, listen, may I thank you both very, very much indeed for that. Aaron McNicholas, who is in Hong Kong at the moment, and uh, Peter Hamilton, Assistant Professor of Modern Chinese History. Thank you very much indeed, and we'll take a break. Welcome back to the programme. Now, we briefly alluded uh, to this at uh, the beginning of the programme, but we're going to go back to carbon tax and uh, consumer interests, shall we say, into the autumn budget time, as mentioned. We'll know what's in store for our pockets in 2020, though the view seems to be around the table. Very, very little change, but we'll see. Uh, Widely flagged increase in carbon tax on the way. And I'm joined now by Dara Cassidy, who is Head of Communications at Bonkers.ie to explain what that might all... Let's go through the ABC of it. What is a carbon tax? So a carbon tax, quite simply, is a tax on carbon emitting fuels. So anything from gas, petrol, uh, diesel, um, home heating oil, all of that would be a carbon emitting fuel and is subject to the tax. Uh, probably important to point out that electricity doesn't have the carbon tax, but here we have the PSO But levy. don't we pay? We pay extra to the ESP, don't we? We do. So, so that's where we have the PSO levy, which is the public service obligation levy. Um, it's fallen in recent years and the, the, the amount at the moment is around €40 Euro a year. That levy was introduced around 10 years ago to support the renewable energy sector. So yes, in many ways, we're, we're paying there and as well. It? it has the sense that the amount of renewable energy from wind has increased significantly since it was introduced. Through these taxes? Um, well, it definitely helped support us. Uh, before the levy, the PSO levy was introduced, the level of renewable as energy, wind energy, was, was, was almost negligible. Now we're up to around 30%. Uh, we have a target to reach 70%, so we're definitely on our way. Right. You'd be, I, I, I mean, I'll come to it later on, but as we're encouraged to have um, hybrid cars or electric cars, there's no way we're going to get our electricity for free indefinitely. No, absolutely not. No. I mean, it sounds lovely now as an attraction. Wouldn't it be grand that you could fill up for nothing? But anyway, uh, the how is it done at the moment, the carbon tax? So it's done per tonne of CO2 emitted by the fuel concerns. So that obviously sounds a little bit complicated. But at the moment, it's levied at a rate of €20 Euro per tonne of CO2 that's emitted. And it's forecast to potentially increase to €30, uh, Euro, which would be a 50% increase. Now, some of the latest kind of soundings from government have been that it might be a little bit less, but nobody knows for sure. Now, listeners are probably saying, well, what does €20 Euro per tonne of CO2 emitted mean to me? A very good question, yeah. Uh, so I'll go through some of the fuels. So at the moment, 20 euro. So while it is at the moment, it's adding around 50 euro to every annual gas bill. Uh, so that's next to 50 euro a year that people are paying uh, just uh, do, in carbon uh, tax. Gas for cooking? Gas for central heating? Yes, just natural gas. Okay. So uh, anyone who has uh, uh, you know, radiators and, and, and natural gas with flow gas or board gas, whatever the case may be, you're paying at the moment, the average person is paying already around €50 Euro a year just in carbon tax. That's a euro a week, shall we say? Around that, yeah. yeah. Um, it's adding already around €0.05 cent to every litre of petrol and diesel. 
So that's obviously on top of all of the excise duties and the VAT as well. Um, and it's also adding around 45 to 50 cents to every bale of briquettes and uh, peas. That's a lot on a bale of briquettes. It is. And then it's adding around two euro to a standard bag of coal. So I mean, I can understand the coal, but but I mean, when, when we started our various changeovers, we were told that, that peat was OK. Now, I know that's gone, that's history, etc. But I associate it with... You know, people of not enormous wealth, mm-hmm. uh, you have to heat your house in the no more than Mary putting up her her dial as it gets colder and colder. How much on a on a pill? Around forty-five to fifty cents, and that's before this even. Oh, no, absolutely, and that's before this obviously been the increase. So if it does increase to thirty euro uh, on Tuesday, all those figures, you know, multiply them by one and a half. So that's around nice seventy-five euro a year to the gas bill. That's around seventy-five cent to a bale of briquettes. That's around seven or eight cent on every liter of petrol uh, or diesel. So it will begin to to, to impact on a people's bale pockets. I'm really fixed on the bale of briquettes. <laughs> a bale of briquettes will will burn in a fire in a few hours. In a couple of hours, yeah. it's not like your long-term central heating bill. No, um, but but this I suppose gets back to the calculation that's been done. It's it's twenty euro per ton of CO two, right. so it's okay. all very very uh, technical and revenue goes into a huge amount of detail as to how it's calculated. But, but yeah, no, th- those are the figures, and that's what it will impact on people. And remember, it's forecast to potentially increase to eighty euro in two thousand and thirty. So if that were to, to take effect, um, we're going to have to see a huge change in consumer behaviour so that people aren't uh, impacted by this because you know, ultimately it's supposed to be revenue neutral. If everyone does what they're supposed to do, it's not supposed to raise any money for the government. A little bit like the plastic bag levy. It wasn't a revenue raising measure. Having said that though, when you look at other levies like maybe the sugar tax and I know it's only just been implemented Um, is that going to raise revenue or are people still going to consume the same amounts of sugar? What Uh, do you think? I think it's it's, it's still early days Personally, um, I'm not sure if, if it's going to have the, the impact that the government wants. Um, I don't think you can tax yourself out of all of these solutions. Um, if even if you look at alcohol, I mean, look at the amount of tax that's on alcohol yeah. and that hasn't really changed our consumption. It has and, been, and there's more, go- well, they're changing the rules again, yes, which yeah. will increase the profits of some. <laughs> happily for them uh, and, and, and charge the consumer but yeah so I mean so, I mean, it's going to be controversial I think some people will be hit harder than others um, certainly if the government is serious about this and they do implement th- this tax um, particularly if it's up to 30 euro um, yeah people are going to notice right. this yeah. I mean I don't know what the percentage is and I presume it's not an enormous percentage but I also have to presume there are lots and lots of households in Ireland where there's no central heating. Potentially, yes. I mean, certainly there's a lot of houses in Ireland that have very poor energy ratings. Yeah. Um, and these people will be impacted more. Um, I was going to say maybe in rural areas, but even in um, some, some slightly more modern homes, you'd be surprised when you look at the, the BEOR rating of some apartments that were even built in the 1990s or the early 2000s, yeah. which doesn't and seem the like... the 70s, yeah. Absolutely. And you know, they, they'll obviously be impacted more because they're using more energy to, to keep their homes warm. Uh, how might rebates work? They sound very clunky to me. Do you remember the water charges and you get the cheque in the post and all that? It, it, it's it, unconvincing, it, isn't it? It is. And there isn't a huge amount of firm detail from the government here. Um, it looks as if they're going to take a, a, a two-pronged approach in terms of refunding the money. Because like I said, technically, this isn't supposed to be a revenue-raising okay. measure. Yeah. So they're looking at increasing potentially the fuel allowance, the winter fuel allowance. It's €22.50 a week at the moment. 
this is for somebody on the old age pension? Uh, yes, or even maybe a single mother who oh, might right. be entitled okay. to it as well. Yeah. So whoever's entitled to the, the, the fuel allowance, um, that's potentially going to be raised. Uh, and then there could be other social welfare payments as well, which might be increased to compensate people for the fact that they're paying more elsewhere. Uh, the next, I suppose... Um, so then how does that save the environment? Well, but this, this is a fair question. And like, like I said, you could use the example, for example. So the ERSI has said that single parent families, for example, single parent mothers or fathers are one of the groups that are, are really at risk of an increase in the carbon tax. Um, but you could have one single parent family that lives in Dublin that uses the dart and the bus, doesn't have a car, has electric heating, and then another single parent family down the country uh, who has to rely on, on their car because there's no public transport. Yeah who have uh, gas as, as they're heating, they're going to be impacted significantly more than the other family. So I don't know how the government is going to find out you know, who has the car, who's using the public transport, who has gas-fired central heating. So it's going to be a little bit of a minefield. Can you imagine filling out the forms? Actually, I'd go cold, I think, <laughs> at that stage, rather than face in, into that. Um, and so that's really how they're going to attempt to uh, face justice. Now, we we hear the ads running all the time and I know that you and your colleagues think we're all very foolish citizens uh, because you would argue that we should all be shopping around for the best gas and electricity bills. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, we say that switching saves. Um, I think there's a real feeling in Ireland that businesses reward loyalty. That's seldom the case. Um, they punish you for loyalty, don't they? They do. And that's yeah. it. And there's a huge, actually, the British Competition Commissioner is really investigating this at the moment. And I'd imagine the Irish authorities will do so uh, soon where they're looking at people uh, as to why people are like you said being punished for actually being it's called the, the loyalty premium yeah. um, so you know I, I'd always encourage listeners to switch um, you know when you look at the, the budget people are going to be you know analysing over who won an extra five who gained an extra five euro who gained an extra ten euro uh, you could save around 400 euro by switching your gas bill today excuse me for a moment please have you ever switched I have actually, yeah. Oh, very good. Have you? I do. You have. I'm impressed. Have you? No. No. <laughs> have you? No. Have you? Twice. Twice? <laughs> God, aren't you the sensible person though, with all that experience behind you? I'm very, very impressed <laughs> that you did. I'm not a bit impressed with you, but then I have to put my hands up. I never did either. So. <laughs> Um, because, but actually, you guys will do it for one. It, it, it genuinely is. I mean, some bills would also encourage people to look at switching their mortgage, look at switching broadband. Um, but when it comes to gas and electricity, because of the way the market is set up, it is genuinely one of the easiest ways to switch and save money. Um, if we were talking about switching mortgage, although mind you, there's huge money to be saved by switching mortgage. So I'd really encourage people to look into it. But you know, if you're switching mortgage, it's going to take a bit of time. You'll need to get a solicitor involved. I'll be honest, it's a little bit of work involved but the savings make up for it but when it comes to gas and electricity I mean you can do it online in the space of five minutes uh, it's, it's very very little is needed as your guests from here can, can attest to and uh, like I said it, it's a good way to save Okay we'll Mary all... what did you save? I don't know exactly because my husband actually takes care of it I, I don't know exactly but um, I do know that uh, in, in one case it was just a question now of getting our electricity from, from the gas company which seems a bit mad to me there's yeah. the exact same amount of electricity we just have a different name on the bill yeah 
and it's yeah yeah, no, I mean, it, it really is simple. There's not much to it. Right. Uh, yeah, sometimes you can get your gas and electricity from the same supplier. So, mm-hmm. Board Gosh and I sell electricity, for example. Actually, which, they're buying it from the same place, aren't they? They are, yeah. Um, I, I presume the Happy Days, just because um, this all sounds very good, we've all served, saved €400 Euro a year if we're very good, but we're very much encouraged now on the electric car and the hybrid um, and there are great encouragements if you can charge your car for free and have it to your house for free that ain't going to last No and already there's plans to, to change that and to bring in some type of charging um, I think that if the carbon tax is increased at the trajectory that we expect it'll, it should still be cheaper for, for people to, to as opposed to fill up or to charge up through electricity okay. but you'd be, just be worried I think the government shouldn't kill it, kill it off too, too soon and start looking David, at David how do you see quickly. that planning out? I think what we're talking about, again, it's very interesting to listen to Dara. Uh, what we're talking about is is a dramatic change in people's behaviour and culture and buying patterns and concerns. And there's sometimes a tendency to say, well, it's only, it's, you know, you know it's, it's the Greta's of this world. The, the, it's the kids are at the vanguard of this movement. But it's, it's very, very clear that climate change will not be solved without nudging people in certain directions because we procrastinate. The thing about climate change is you can't feel it. So it's something in the future. It's a bit like doing your homework on a Sunday night rather than on a Friday night at the weekend, just for the young people listening, right? Yeah. That you, you cram at the end. And climate change is the sort of same. It's, it's, it's something that we're aware of, but we can't feel it. So therefore, you have to change all the incentives now to change behaviour. Right. And I just think that's the new world we're in. Right. Anybody around here with a hybrid or an electric car? No. no. I We tried to get a hybrid recently, but because this is another issue, with it's insurance related, because we have not been in Ireland during the last year, we start from zero again. You're treated, so, you know. What, what do you mean you weren't in Ireland? So essentially, I, my, well, I won't get into the personal details essentially, but I, 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 was, I was in Moldova for, for last year. My wife was working there. Uh, and uh, when she came back and she, we, we went to the car dealer, went to get a hybrid car, and we were told that uh, it would cost about, I don't know, it, you know, firstly, nobody would insure us. And it turned out that it was because she hadn't been driving in Ireland during yeah. the last year. Uh, and it's a, it's a problem for returning immigrants, for yeah, example. Yeah. And essentially, I, I had this circular argument on the phone with several insurance where more or less it said, I said, well, the UK was OK. If you had UK driving experience, I said, why is the UK different? And uh, they said, oh, you know, it's, it's very similar. You know, they, they have uh, the same roads. And I said, well, what, German roads aren't up to our standards? Yeah. And then they would go like, uh, uh, oh, they, they drive on the same side of the road. And I would say, well, so does Cyprus and Malta. I mean, like, you know, they're EU member states. And uh, so my wife has an EU driving license, not an Irish one. Right, OK. And, um, and, and eventually nobody would insure us. And we had to actually then go for a different car, a, a petrol one with a smaller litre. Uh, before and we could was get... it specifically because it was hybrid? No, the problem was most hybrid cars have had a higher. Um, it was like two liter um, because it's just the nature of the car. Oh, right. I mean, yeah. and and, and um, this, so we had to get a very very small one. And even then, we're being you know the, the quotations were in the in the several thousands. I mean, like you know, it's, it's, think it's, think about all the people who emigrated during the financial crisis who went to Australia and Canada. They 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 have all faced that exact same issue. It's absolutely extraordinary. But I, I haven't had a car for a few years. I sold a car and said I was going to buy another one. And okay, I live in Dublin. The public transport is better, right? So, You've it's super, so, super public transport. Yeah, it is super. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah, yeah, it is super. But you know, I hear this more and more often that families that had maybe two cars, you know, and lots and lots of people are now just downsizing. And you, interestingly, for living in Dublin, you don't need a car. Yeah, I got rid of my car too. 
they do. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. don't even. Yeah. You actually don't even. But again, if, you're, mean, if you're in Connemara or if you're in, 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 in Kerry or if you're in Cork, listen, it's not a chance. Yeah. But for, for urban living, you really don't need one. And it's such a hassle. To have a car yeah, and that, all that, that's and it's said, really expensive. That said, I mean, we, we were, I had the challenge of getting my daughter into a school recently in Dublin and I live in Glasnevin and the nearest school I could get her into was in Cabra and I looked at the public transport and it would have required two bus rides and of course the chance of you connecting on those two buses uh, yeah. on, a, on nine, you know, eight o'clock in the morning, it would have taken about an hour and ten minutes. Uh, by, by public transport even though Capra is not that far away from Glasnevin Capra is very close to yeah. Glasnevin exactly close. but unfortunately all, all buses go to the city centre and then go out again mm. so I would have had to go into the city centre come out again more or less and that's that's that, so living in, in in Dublin is much better than living in the countryside for public transport but there's a lot of problems with yeah. public transport not least the expense I mean I, again I, I mentioned I was living in Moldova now admittedly it's a much poorer country but the thing is is that they have trolley buses going for 10 cents uh, you know here it's about 3 euro for yeah. a Dublin bus one way around uh, uh, so there was a report recently from Deutsche Bank where they were looking at the cost of living in various countries and Ireland had the second, well Dublin because they were looking mainly at cities, has the second most expensive public transport in the world, only after London. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, I travel a bit in Italy and from kind of an hour north of Rome on two trains changing onto the metro, uh, a, a euro 50, you know. What can you do? Well, it's wonderful, but you know yeah. we, we can't compare with that. Anyway, that's all very interesting and food for thought. You, we will check your facts when we listen <laughs> to our friend Pascal on Tuesday and the analysis to follow. Listen, thank you very, very much indeed for coming. And we'll take we'll take a break. Podcast the Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie/radio.